0: And so I'm postponing and evading because I don't want to turn myself in. I can't do that. And I don't want to leave because then I'm going to go to jail. And I don't know what to do. And I'm just postponing, shucking and jiving. And I, I got to the place where I was out of altitude, ideas, and airspeed. I didn't know what to do. You know, I had to land the plane some way. And I said to my brother, I said, Rob, I'm an alcoholic, and I don't know what to do about it. And his response to me was, you just took the first step.
1: Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hello, lords and ladies. That was the voice of Mr. Doug M. from Canton, Georgia, that you heard at the beginning of this episode, and you will be hearing much more from him in just a moment. But first things First, this episode, the one you are tuned into at this very moment, is brought to you by Joe and Jacob, and this is John, so Joe and Jacob and John, would that be considered an alliteration, the thing, I, I think that's what it's called, you know, like she shells, she shells by the she shore, I can't do that, but nonetheless, this episode is brought to you by Joe and Jacob, they went to our website, SoberSpeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow donate PayPal tab and they made a contribution. Thank you so much, Joe and Jacob, for your generosity. This episode is coming right out to ya. I, John M., will be the chairperson for this meeting, this virtual Meeting Between Meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. So take a seat around this virtual table and let's get started. This week, we have Mr. Doug M on the podcast. Mr. Doug M is from Canton, Georgia, He has been sober since August 15th of 1994. We talk about applying the traditions within the confines of a marriage. Uh, We talk about our, our common friend, Jimmy D., And we talk about Doug's white light experience, kind of like a near or was a near-death experience at a Grateful Dead concert. And my guess is he wasn't the only one to ever have one of those at a Grateful Dead concert. But anyway, we address much more. So buckle up, enjoy the ride, and I will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this episode. Enjoy. Okay, everybody, so today we are sitting here with Mr. Doug M., and Doug M. hails to us from the great state of Georgia. So, Doug, why don't you go ahead, first things first, introduce yourself and give your sobriety date if you wish, please. Certainly will. Hi, John. Hi,
0: everybody. My name is Doug M. I am an alcoholic, and uh, by the grace of God, I have been sober since August the 15th of 1994. I'm very thankful for that today.
1: How was that with the math? How many years is that now?
0: 25. Wow. Never would have thought it, to be quite who, honest with you. Who would have
1: thunk it, huh? You know,
0: when I got here at 22 years old, I thought my life was over, and I couldn't have fathomed that, that I have now spent more than half of my life uh, as an active member in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I'm thankful that I am.
1: Wow. Yeah, and you know, I remember when I first came in, and I would see somebody with like 20 years, and I would think, Wow, no way, you know, yep. I could never get there. Yep. And you know, here we sit today. When I, I, I remember,
0: took- I, I remember when I was brand new, and people would talk about in the meetings, Is anybody had an anniversary in the last week? Was uh, sobered up outside of Chicago, and that was kind of the, the intro to birthdays or time rather than doing chips at every meeting. And people would raise their hand and say, Yeah, three months, or four months, or five months, and all I could think is you're a liar. Why would you stay sober for three or four or five months? <laughs> and that was the initial thought was you're a liar. There's no way.
1: <laughs> I get you. So, you. So well, that kind of goes into one of the questions I wanted to ask. Where, where did you sober up? It looks like Chicago.
0: Yeah, I sobered up in uh, in Aurora, Illinois. Uh, it's the Fox River Valley, about forty five miles west of downtown Chicago. I actually uh, went to high school in Batavia, Illinois, and I ended up in Aurora because that's the treatment center, the hospital that would see me when uh, kind of the rubber met the road and it was time to do something.
1: So let's. Uh, I, w- I want to tell people how we met. So I was in uh, Crested Butte, Colorado. We I, I do. I've done a couple of different episodes on Crested Butte. I've talked about Crested Butte quite a bit. Uh, You know, I have a tendency to go up there on a consistent basis. And uh, you uh, were the uh, one of the, I guess, what you would call keynote speakers, however you phrase that. One of the speakers that we had that week, and you did an absolutely fantastic job. Uh, And your wife was there as well. Remind me of her name again? Tracy. Tracy. Yep. Yep. So Tracy was there. So they got a two for one. You were one of the other speakers or she was, she was one of the other speakers. Um, how long have you guys been married? So we were married on
0: April 10th, 1999. So, uh, we have, uh, celebrated our 21st wedding anniversary and, uh, been together a little over 22 years. Uh, we didn't date a tremendously long period of time before we got married, but we uh, we did we did date in a principled fashion with uh, a lot of sponsorship input and direction, which uh, I could tell you was very beneficial for our relationship and still is to till today. So.
1: I'm sure it's been complete smooth sailing the whole time. Huh? No, no, no,
0: no. I, I don't know that any marriage that has survived 20, 20 plus years has been smooth sailing. My father, funny story, my father used to talk about, you know, uh, wedding anniversaries and, and so on. My parents were married almost 53 years before my mother passed. But uh, when they were celebrating their 25th anniversary, we had a big party for them. And, uh, uh, people were saying, so 25 years, he says, yeah, we've been happily married for five years, you know, <laughs> a day here, a day there, You're they right. add up, right. That <laughs> happily married was five of 25. He thought that was pretty smart. So <laughs> I, uh, I have stolen that from my dad at times and we'll say, you know, yeah, we've been, we've been married 20 years, happily married for five, you know, something <laughs> like that. and people find it pretty funny, but it's true. You know, it takes work. It takes mm-hmm. a lot of work and takes a lot of willingness to compromise and, and put principles to play to make it last for sure.
1: Yeah. So, in do you ever? I, I've heard a lot of people in the program talk about taking the traditions and applying that to their mar to their marriage or you know their partnership or whatever they have with somebody else. Um, have you ever? Have y'all taken that? Like, Let me put it this way. For me, I know about it, right? And I think about it and it's been conscious of points, but I've never really kind of sat down with my family and said, this is exactly what we're going to do.
0: Yeah, I would, I would say I probably uh, fall along those same lines with you, John, because you know we have read that and we have done some things. Interestingly, when Tracy and I were dating, her sponsor at the time, uh, Naomi Z, was longtime sober, but did a lot of work outside of Alcoholics Anonymous and started to actually create some things to help her sponsees in life situations. And one of those things were some principles for dating. And some different literature and materials, not AA, but nonetheless, some materials on communication, compromised, trust, listening, as well as kind of a modified version of the traditions and relationships. So we've read them, but it's not something we consciously engage having discussions as a family in total with, but they are guiding principles because, you know, really it helps us get along with each other, and avoid some of the power struggles that uh, can come into play in a marriage and so on. But uh, it's not conscious always on the forefront, but we definitely are aware uh, and, and conscious of them and will participate in, many instances, the practice of those underlying principles uh, within our communication in marriage.
1: Yeah. So, and, you know, we do talk to our kids uh, a lot about they, they know the terms Think about, you know, like our our common welfare should come first. You know, we have to remain together as a family unit on a consistent basis. And yep. so, yep. so they, they may not know exactly where that comes from sometimes. Now, who knows they're, if they end up in a meeting someday, they're going to go, oh, that's where he got it. He's not that smart after all.
0: Exactly. You know, it's kind of like the sponsee when you give them the pearls of wisdom out of the book and then they get to that point in the steps. Oh, that's where you got that. (laughs) You know, sponsorship is fun because you can kind of think, you know, you you kind of come across as though you really know something when really there's not an original thought. It's just a regurgitation of experience shared experience had and the study of the literature. But with uh, newcomers, it's almost like you're, "Oh, oh, where did you get that? You know? Right. It, it was funny, I you know, talking about principles and, and coming across in that way, when I lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which I did for you know uh, almost seventeen years from ninety-seven until two thousand thirteen. But uh, needless to say, uh, the, the gas leasing stuff was coming up, and everybody was leasing their gas rights. And uh, I went to our neighborhood organization, and everybody stepped back when they said, "Please step forward to volunteer," and they elected me to be the the president of the Northeast Tarrant gas leasing organization. And I started structuring around like an AA group conscience, right? We're, we're having minority opinion and we're having simple majority and we're having substantial unanimity. And, and I'm constructing these things just totally based on my AA experience. And people are like, how do you know all this stuff? And it's just like, well, you know, I've just got some experience with meetings and organizing people (laughs) and things like that. And one of my neighbors was like really resentful about this other group or whatever. And I said, Hey, stop love, stop letting them live rent-free in your head. And she was like, where did you get that? Uh-huh. <laughs> it's just funny because the principles we live by and the things that we learn in Alcoholics Anonymous is somewhat a foreign language when we get here, but it actually translates to the human experience very well.
1: One other connection that we have, a gentleman who's been on this uh, podcast many times, in fact, you know Jimmy D., Uh, Did you know Jimmy D when you were living here in the area?
0: Absolutely. Uh, A funny story about Jimmy D and I, uh, I started attending the Big Book group as a visitor and then ultimately became a member and was a member there for about six years uh, at the same time that he was. Uh, It was a big thriving group in North Dallas and uh, was just after Jimmy got sober, right? I got engaged at that group um, just after he got sober. He sobered up in August of 97, uh, or ninety, yeah, ninety-seven, and I started going to that group in uh, in August of maybe September of ninety-seven. So really correlated with his new new sobriety. When I got the man that's my sponsor today, I took a uh, commitment for uh, District fifty-five in in Dallas-Fort Worth as the corrections chair, and uh, Jimmy Dean was actually my alternate. Corrections Chair, which is his first general service job in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I think about that at times, and I give him a little grief at times when, you know, I mean, he's a trustee now, and is a past delegate, and he's done all tremendous work in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I think Jimmy is one of our finest servants. He really is so suited to that work. But I give them a little grief from time to time and say, just remember, don't get too big ahead because I gave you your first service job as my (laughs) alternate (laughs) District (laughs) 55 corrections. So we work together and and have known each other for years and have done a lot of things together, both in service and um, around conferences and shared a home group and so on. So uh, Jimmy's one of my 3 a.m. guys, right? If if I need to make a call at 3 a.m., uh, Jimmy's one of those guys, and he has referred to me in the same vein.
1: So I remember. I, I'm wondering whether to bring this up. I, I don't. I don't want to give away anything from Jimmy's uh, privacy, uh, but I don't think you will mind. And, and if it gets too too bad, I can edit this out. But, you, know, <laughs> you were about to speak at the Crestview Conference, and you were up there on stage. And I was I was just texting back and forth with Jimmy, and I told him that you were about to get on stage. Uh, or you were on stage and you were about to speak, I should say. And Jimmy texted me back and he said something like, I'll never forget the parking lot conversation yep. that I had with Doug. He helped me in some form or fashion. Do you know what I'm talking about?
0: Absolutely. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was a cold Wednesday night uh, in the fall of the year. And we were actually standing in the parking lot at the Hutchins State Jail. Uh, We both carried the meeting. When I took that district commitment on, we had established a meeting at the Hutchins State Jail down south of Dallas-Fort Worth, and uh, I was going every Wednesday down to the pod and getting speakers to come in and things of that nature, and ultimately, uh, Jimmy started coming on Wednesdays as well, and we moved it to the education building and opened it up for the whole thing and i started sponsoring a man in that facility that's why i ended up turning the commitment completely over to jimmy cuz can't do both be a volunteer and a sponsor and jimmy was ready to take that on but when his first sponsor uh, decided to leave alcoholics anonymous it was on that on a wednesday Then we were standing in the parking lot, and he had told me what happened with his first sponsor. And I don't know the details exactly of the conversation, but it went something along the lines of, you know, I hate that that happened. But remember, you've got to focus on your recovery, and you're responsible for your recovery, and your reliance must be on a power, but you got to get a sponsor. So whoever's next in line, find that person and don't go untethered. And if between now and you finding that time, if you need somebody to talk to, you know I'm here. You can call me anytime, 24-7. And that was the basis of the conversation. And I think it was the next day that he got his current sponsor that he still works with, who was uh, his first sponsor's sponsor. So it was as he moved from his sponsor to his grand sponsor in that transition. And you know it was just a good conversation because you know, I care a lot about Jimmy. And ultimately, I care a lot about all our members And I tell the guys I work with or the people in my home group, you know, I was fortunate in my upbringing in Alcoholics Anonymous to have not just sponsorship, but people that cared enough about me to tell me the truth, that cared more about me than they did my feelings, but they treated me with tolerance, kindness, patience, love while telling me the truth. And I think that's so important that we do with each other is that we're honest and open and we hold each other accountable so we don't let that disease that centers in our mind take hold of us and uh, negate our ability to make effective decisions.
1: Mm, Nicely said. All right, so let's go ahead and, uh, like I said, I've said a billion times, I never know exactly where we're going to go when we do these uh, episodes, and I like it to be more of a conversation like we're having now, just like we're, I mean, I've got a little coffee here, I'm having coffee, we're we're chatting with each other, looking at each other, uh, it's really what I enjoy the most, uh, So, but let's go back a little bit in time, if you will, sure. obviously, you've been sober for quite some time, but... My guess is you had a little bit of trouble before you let it in the rooms of AA. Why don't you just go ahead, and, and he's holding his fingers back <laughs> Just a yeah, little. Just a little <laughs> bit. Uh, why don't you go ahead and share with the audience uh, whatever you want to share to get them qua- caught up to know that you, quote, qualify, if, the, if that's the word.
0: Sure, sure. You know, uh, all three parts of the story. I think are important. Our book talks about how it works, you know, what we were like, what happened and what we're like today. And I think all three parts are critically important. And, you know, for the audience in particular, you may have people that are just seeking some sort of answer to a problem that they're having. and, and, And identification is such a key element. If I don't identify, and that's the really what I was like portion, is to let people know that, you know, I suffer from alcoholism you know and for me it started at an early age i don't uh, i didn't become a a heavy drinker right away or anything like that but i know when i look back what i suffered from was that 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 feeling of separation and i don't know why and i've stopped trying to determine why but even in an early early age i felt somewhat disconnected you know i was okay probably up until i went to kindergarten Right. Because I was surrounded by my family up until that point. But then, when I was unleashed into society and having peers <laughs> and people of my, uh, you know, contemporary age and so on that didn't love me unconditionally, I started comparing my insides to their outsides. Right. They look like they knew what was going on better than I did. And that made me feel afraid. Right. Um, and separation. So early in my life, I played and started to play the role of the chameleon, right? And I started to kind of act the way I thought you thought I should. That's interesting how you can live that way, right? I don't know what you're thinking, but I think I know what you're thinking. And because I think I know what you're thinking about me, I'm going to govern my actions based on those thoughts. We've not even spoken a word yet, right? I mean, that's just <laughs> the way I can live. And it's amazing to me that that my mind works in that way you know i always say uh, at times in talking about steps and things is you know i'm a mind reader i don't know if there's any other mind readers present but i'm a mind reader i don't have to know you i don't have to hear a word out of your mouth or an idea but i know you and that's where it started and i didn't know that i needed relief from that and you know my first taste of alcohol i was probably four And that was just beating my dad into submission while he was watching football, drinking a beer with that kind of "What do you got? What's that?" You know, even that young age, I wanted to be somewhere else, doing something else with somebody else. You know, I didn't want to be the mascot kid, the little crumbs, the the little you know, uh, uh, rug rat that was. You know, with the I want to be one of the men. And right. you know, I tipped that beer up and it was just nothing. And then, you know, because I felt different and I wanted to show off and I wanted to get away with things I wasn't supposed to. My next, next taste of alcohol was when I was an altar boy, of the Catholic church, I had to have a little pre-mass unblessed altar wine, you know, uh, because I'm wired in a way that says, don't, I kind of have to, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but for, 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 from that early age and those events, you know, I was rambunctious as a kid, even before a drink. I probably could have used a drink on a consistent and regular basis, starting at that four year old age, because my mom used to say to me, you know, hey, you're my youngest of four, but if you'd been a first, you may very well have been an only, you know. So so that's pre alcohol that this is the assessment. But, uh, you know, my first drink of, of consequence was probably 12 years old, 11, 12. And it was a planned event. And I say consequence because it was the first time. I felt the effect of alcohol and I drank about eight beers uh, and I got really, really drunk and room spinning sick and loved every minute of it. I mean, Mm -hmm. I loved everything about it. Not the room spinning sick or anything, but that was not a deterrent in any way, shape or form because alcohol did something for me. And what it did for me was to alleviate that feeling of separation, that feeling of disconnection, that feeling of, I don't belong or discomfort. Or dis-ease, if you will. Let me lower my shoulders and take a deep breath all the way in and feel like I was where I was. And without a drink, I wanted to be somewhere else doing something else with somebody else. I was never really comfortable in my own skin. But once I started drinking, it was like, oh, wait just a second. This is all right. And so from that moment until really a little while after I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had that obsession of the mind because I was thinking about the last time I had, planning the next time I would, or was in the middle of drinking with just one exception, and that was on the athletic field. That was my only other respite.
1: So, what kind of uh, what kind of what what sports did you play?
0: Uh, pretty much John, you name it. I did it, right? You know, my first organized sport was ice hockey. Uh, I grew up outside of, uh between Jan- Jackson and Grand Rapids, Michigan before moving back to Chicago. Um, but uh, <clears throat> so I played uh, organized ice hockey competitively and in, in travel and so on. I played organized baseball competitively. I played organized basketball competitively. I ran organized track competitively. I ran, played football organized competitively. So, you know, kind of, you name it, I played it. And then recreationally, I did anything else because I hate to lose more than I love to win, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> so you mix in a little alcoholism and a little bit of over competitiveness with the youngest it has to prove himself. And it was pretty bad. I'm just going to tell you. Um, you know, very competitive as the youngest with my older siblings and so on. But I actually was blessed with some athletic ability, right? And and thinking uh, the games. So I think my ability to uh, think the games I played and the athletic ability, that's where I connected that relief from my brain and why I did well in sports while I was there. But I was never dedicated to it, right? I'm a I'm a guy that doesn't want to do extra credit, so I kind of practice during practice and then outside of practice, I'm gonna do what I want to do, and I was uh, able to succeed yeah, fairly well uh, in, in sports in that regard, enough to be able to play junior college baseball and you know um, receive some honors in high school for football and baseball and so on. But I wouldn't probably, you know pro material, but I might've been able to do a little more than I did if I had dedicated my time to athletics as much as I did to drinking. Because, you know, by the time I graduated high school, I was habitually drinking, you know, uh, three, four nights a week, every week, you know, uh, as much as I could drink in uh, experiencing blackouts with great regularity, even at that young age. And, you know, I don't know, I don't debate born alcoholic or not alcoholic, but I can tell you this. Our book describes in more about alcoholism, there's a great description of men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. And if I honestly look back, it was probably in that 16, 17-year-old timeline that that actually happened, that once I started drinking, didn't matter. And there's another part in we agnostics that really is, to me, a great description. And if you're debating whether you're alcoholic and you ask yourself these two questions, if either apply... Probably the case. And that is if, when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if once you start drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, then you're probably alcoholic. I can tell you this that first sentence never applied to me, never applied to me. Even when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, it did not apply to me. I never wanted to quit entirely. I used to think, oh, well, if I just don't drink like that, I'll be okay, right? I'll be okay if I don't drink like that. I don't know that I have no control of the amount I take once I start drinking. That second sentence absolutely applied to me, and it started at 16 or 17. And an interesting experience, you know, when I was probably 17, uh, uh, 17 years old, I was a senior in high school. My parents were out for the night or whatever, and I had a couple of buddies over, and we bought like quart bottles of beer, and we watched a movie. And I didn't have any more alcohol after that quart bottle. I had no way to go get any more. And it was one of the most miserable drinking nights I've ever had in all of my existence because I didn't know I had taken the triggered dose. You know, our our doctors, at the doctor's opinion, and I'll always kind of quote and paraphrase the book. I can't tell you page and verse, but I understand what's in it because I've studied that book. It is our text, if you will. It's the basis of of. Kind of my life in many respects, how I go about living life and solving the problems of life and so on. But uh, the doctor's opinion talks about the compulsion, right? Uh, the allergy and uh, the phenomenon of craving. and that's the compulsion, right? When I take the first drink, I become infinitely thirsty, right? It's the unquenchable thirst and uh, and that probably started 16, 17 years old and that's really what it means if once you start drinking, You have little control over the amount you take. If I'm honest with my drinking and I really look at it, I'd never had a couple. The delusion said I I could, but I don't want to. I have a choice, and I choose to get drunk every time I drink. But when I'm honest, it's not true.
1: We will be continuing our conversation with Doug M. in just a moment. Just a reminder, you're listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at www.soberspeak.com. And you can also find the Donate button on our website. You can use if and only if the Spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind this is a podcast funded by you, the listeners. Soberspeak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect. Denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. Doug M. So you're 16, 17. Uh, You may not have had the realization at that time, but you know you have an issue. Uh, You're moving forward. Take me through the, I guess, early years of your uh, uh, 20s.
0: Okay. So, uh, you know, I, I finished high school and I started junior college playing junior college baseball and drinking all the time. Um, interestingly, I kind of did the geographic without moving. And, and for those of you that may not understand what a geographic is, it's kind of I can reinvent myself if I just change my surroundings and everything will true. be okay. I did that without leaving the same bedroom. Right, I did that by leaving the high school and going to the junior college, and you know, <laughs> high school with ashtrays, right? And and so now I'm a new guy, and uh, I met my new best friends and started doing what we do, right? And uh, I ultimately uh, got called to the carpet uh, due to some nefarious activities and drinking and so on with those friends with our coach and. Uh, he summarily dismissed me from the team, but um, at the end of the conversation, he asked if I had a willingness or a desire to continue to play, and I absolutely did. I was being pursued for a possible you know, four-year university scholarship for a Division II school, get paid for it, keep playing ball. I've been playing since I was about six, and he said, "Well, you need to do a few things and one of those things was for me to have a meeting with uh, he and my parents and I thought, really, I don't have much of a future in baseball and it's really not that important to me, but, you know, thanks but no thanks, coach." <laughs> you know, what I did that day was make my first really conscious alcoholic decision. And what I mean by that is I put my drinking and lifestyle ahead of something that had value and purpose in my life. Now, I'd been making those decisions even as early in high school, you know, putting grades aside, assignments aside, relationships aside. But that day, I made a conscious decision that my life of drinking and carousing was more important than baseball. So I quit. And uh, I fell back on the parental scholarship program so I could go to the university. And uh, that fall, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, leveraged that parental scholarship program and went away to uh, Northern Illinois University out in DeKalb, which is out in kind of the country of Northern Illinois. And that was the first time of freedom, first time I'm out on my own, right? You know, no, no boundaries, no guide, no guardrails, no parents, no nothing. And uh, it, uh, it was on. Really, it was on. Uh, I took a 15-hour class load that first semester as a as a junior in college, and uh, my grade point average was 0. 0.75. Uh, so uh, that's not very good, right, on a four-point scale. <laughs> right. I understand. I yeah, was in because, the same boat. Because I registered for classes and I didn't attend. And the reason I didn't attend is because I was too busy partying. I was too busy drinking. And I started getting to that place really within about a week, 10 days of being on that campus, of being a daily drinker from then until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous just a couple of years later. Right. And it really was the beginning of the end. And my second semester, I had to get off probation. So I did, uh, I attended class and I didn't really change my drinking. I just changed some of my awake behavior and I attended class and was able to get a, a decent uh, grade point average to get off probation. And then summer hit. And that's really when the you know things started heading downhill because I'm running around. I'm trying to carry a job. I'm going out of town, you know, uh, to concerts and doing crazy stuff for a week. And then I come back and I call my boss and say, "Oh, I kind of continued on the road and I'm, I'm I'm going to New York to see some more concerts. You know, I was kind of following the Grateful Dead a little bit. And you know, really, I'm sitting at the bar locally trying to get my my bearings after a week's worth of going to Grateful Dead shows and and partying all week and so on and You know, he said, Doug, really, I can't tell my customers that, uh, sorry, uh, one of my lead production guys is following the Grateful Dead, so he can't uh, come to work, so I can't deliver your order, so you can come pick up your last check. And I was like, man, this is, you know, how unfair is that? I mean, he's so reasonable, right? Right. Right. How how narrow-minded of him to fire me for that? I mean, come on. So you know, I started going job to job and jumping around, and 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 starting to steal from my parents more and more. You know, I got to that point where I had to drink, and uh, I didn't have any money in my pocket, and I lived about thirty miles from my parents, and I'd get in the car that they bought me, with gas that they paid for, and drive to their house while they were at work and break in and uh, dump out the big change jar onto the bed and scrape up about $20 worth of quarters just so I could get that case of Budweiser beer that I needed to stop the shakes, to stop that ill will, to stop that just feeling of impending doom that was on me every morning. And that's, to me, what you know A Vision for You, another chapter in our book, talks about, which was my first reading assignment in Alcoholics Anonymous, was the first couple pages. And it talks about the four horsemen, terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair, and I was starting to feel what that felt like in uh my fourth semester at that university. I'm drinking to live and living to drink. And, you know, I think I'm having fun. You know, I'm chasing that once a month fun time at this point, right? And that once a month fun time is when everything aligns right and you see a good band at the bar and you don't get in an argument and maybe you, you know, you just don't have any scrapes, you don't have a full on blackout, maybe just a brownout, you know. Mm-hmm. I got comfortable in the blackout world. You know, I don't know about you, but it's kind of like time travel. Right? You, right, you know, you just materialize in new places, <laughs> and uh, you know. Um, so I'm drinking to live and living to drink in that fourth semester, and it's getting bad, and I just can't do it. So I quit school, and uh, my parents uh, didn't know what to do with me. And my uh, mom's youngest sister uh, made an offer: Doug could come live with Jim and I in Nashville. And here we go again, another geographic. If I could just get away from all these people in DeKalb that are dragging me down from my potential. Mm -hmm. I'll be okay. When I got sober and I look back at that time, you know, those guys that I said were dragging me down were still going to class. They're still getting their degree. I'm the one that dropped out because I can't manage sitting in a classroom 10 hours a week to do college studies because I'm drunk all the time because I can't not drink. And I have the delusion that I'm choosing to drink every day. Right. And it's just, it's just absurd. And so I moved down to Nashville to go to work for my, for my uncle Jim at Nashville Wine and Spirits. Uh, So they put me to work (laughs) at the liquor store. And uh, lo and behold, I was being assessed because my, my aunt ran ran the Oasis center, uh, which was a drug and alcohol assessment center for teens. So I'm being Uh. assessed and working at the liquor store, you know, and and I'm just, I'm lost in many respects seeking something. And I don't know what I'm seeking, but I need something different. And, um, I can't ask for help. I don't know how to ask for help. Uh, I don't know how to express myself. And I'm just drinking, right? I'm just drinking to try and survive. And I spent six weeks in Nashville. That's all the longer I could last there you know and I'm selling wine to the society folks in Nashville Tennessee and you know uh, I'd never really had any wine that came from grapes other than that altar wine back in third grade right you know I mean Mad Dog and Thunderbird <laughs> right. and, you know those processed liquors they're not real wine <laughs> and now I gotta sell wine um, and you know
1: wine they, that came from grapes
0: yeah I never really thought about <laughs> that, <right? laughs> well you know this wine that I'm trying to sell in Nashville's cost like 300 350 dollars a bottle I mean, and this is like high dollar, high class wine. I mean, I don't understand that, right? Why would you spend that much money on, you know, 10 <laughs> six ounce glasses of alcohol? That's not even going to do the job, right? I mean, I could buy a lot of Budweiser for $300, <laughs> right. but I got to sell this. And, you know, I tell a story often while I'm, when I'm telling my story that that's really indicative of the alcoholic ego. And how it keeps separation, and how it isolates us, and keeps us a, a, alone in many respects, and 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 the way that manifests for me is I have to know everything about everything. I can't say, "Will you help me?" or "I don't know," or "Will you show me?" And so, because I have to have all the answers, I'm not willing to actually really engage, you know. And the book talks about we're a prey to misery and we're unable to affect personal conversation, you know, personal communication relationships. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but nonetheless, I'm in that place. But I got to impress you because I'm so dreadfully insecure. And so we go to a wine tasting, and it's kind of a funny story, but it's indicative of the alcoholic ego being driven by fear with an unwillingness to actually acknowledge I don't know something. We sit down on this, di- on this dais, and there's five of us, and I sit in the middle. Now, my experience with you know wine is altar wine, but I'm learning how to... Talk about the floral effervescence and how the 10 in cleanses your palate, and how you know this German Riesling is sweet to go with a nice you know you know robust white sauce, and how this Cabernet is dry and goes really well with this red sauce. You know whatever, right? So we we got to sell a new wine line, and we're sitting in the dais, and the the salesman of the new wine line he pulls the cork out of the bottle and he hands the cork to the guy on the left, and he smells the cork and passes it on and starts to describe. You yeah, know I got kind of get this woody overtone or whatever, and so on, and the next. Person person does. And I'm listening really intently and they hand me the cork and I smell the cork and I pass it on. and I give them a good description of what's going on. I mean, I smelled cork, you know, I mean, I don't know what I'm doing, right? Then they pour wine into everybody's glass and everybody's kind of swirling the wine so it gets its breath so it'll taste right. So I'm swirling and then everybody takes a big gulp of it. I do that and we're squishing it like mouthwash. I'm like, okay, I get that. I guess you got to kind of get it all over your taste buds and everything. <laughs> and then The damnedest thing I ever saw happen, John, this guy over on the far left side picks up a bucket and he spits out the wine. And I'm thinking, oh God, I'm going to be found out. They know I'm going to be just completely separated from this expertise that I'm trying to put forth. I've already swallowed the wine. <laughs> I mean, I don't understand why you'd spit out perfectly good alcohol, but uh, needless to say, you know, that's kind of indicative of the ego. And the separation rather than say, Oh, I didn't realize we were going to spit it out. I already swallowed it. I've got to puff up my cheeks with air and then make a production. Like I'm spitting the wine out because I don't want to feel apart from, I already feel apart from, but I don't want anybody to know that's how I feel because I'm doing things I'm not supposed to. So anyway, uh, that's kind of the funny story in some respects of the alcoholic ego. But uh, I started longing to be back with those old friends because I didn't have anybody to drink with in Nashville. And so Uh, My brother had a baby and I decided to go back up to Chicago after six weeks of being in Nashville and meet this new child. And on the way I stopped off, uh, in Indianapolis to see the Grateful Dead for three days with some friends, uh, those friends that were dragging me down from my potential. What could go wrong? The second night, a lot of things went wrong. Um, I overindulged in a lot of things, including a tremendous volume of alcohol. And, um, I had a white light near death experience. And, uh, what that uh, what what happened in that experience was, um, you know, basically I died for a period of time and it wasn't my time, and I came back and I came back in a in a in a paranoid, delusional, psychotic state, and I didn't know that, but because I was in psychosis, my reality was that all these federal agencies were after me, uh, particularly the DEA, and uh, they wanted to know what I knew and they wanted to know who I knew and they wanted me to turn myself in and narc on people and. The honor among thieves of my life would not allow me to do that, and uh, that delusion sat really, really steady right in the forefront. It was my reality during these days, and I I spent six days kind of divulging secrets, trying to alleviate those feelings, and none of it worked. And at the end of that time, I was due to go back to Nashville, and I'm sitting with my brother at his house. My brother who happened to be a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous for six and a half years at the time, and he knew something was wrong. And so he's kind of turning the screws of pressure and trying to tell me to go. You got to go. And I'm postponing and evading because my delusion is telling me that if I don't turn myself in and go against every grain of my being and become a narc, then I'm going to go to jail and I'm not fit for jail. But those are my options in my delusion. And so I'm postponing and evading because I don't want to turn myself in. I can't do that. And I don't want to leave because then I'm going to go to jail. And I don't know what to do. And I'm just postponing, shucking and jiving. And I, I got to the place where I was out of altitude, ideas, and airspeed. I didn't know what to do. You know, <laughs> I had to land the plane some way. And I said to my brother, I said, Rob, I'm an alcoholic, and I don't know what to do about it. And his response to me was, you just took the first step. You know, and, and really, I'm
1: sorry, did you say he was a sober member of AA? yep,
0: Yep. Six and a half years at the time. And, uh, you know, he said, you took the first step and I didn't, you know, the first step is, is also in the chapter more about alcoholism. And it talks about, we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. I didn't make a concession. I just said some words. And those words set up a series of events that led me to Alcoholics Anonymous through a treatment facility that I entered the next day. You know, and that really is. Before you
1: go there, can we? Yeah. I want, I want to go back a little that, bit because uh, I've absolutely. always been very interested in uh, near death experiences and, mm-hmm. and, you know, seeing the white light. Can, can you describe that a little bit more? How, I'm assuming it was a drug overdose if you're at a Grateful Dead conference. Con- uh, concert
0: yeah. yeah it was a it was a cocktail of things that that led me to an overdose state but uh, yeah I can remember I was laying on uh, I was laying on the ground at the campground and um, and and just looking at the stars and uh, continuing to indulge in substances and ultimately um, the horizons just kind of closed up it kind of started with a peripheral view almost like it started like I was laying I don't know if you've ever laid in the water with your face just above the water and you can kind of see the water out the sides of your periphery and then you see everything above you that was kind of the way it seemed in my in my state and and who were
1: you with those uh,
0: no, buddies well yeah but there weren't anybody really near me i was kind of all by myself because they might have been physically present but they weren't around me at all you know there was nothing engaged i just retreated completely inside of myself and what ultimately happened is those horizons just continued to close over a period of time. I don't know how long until it was completely black and that, and then that completely black turned to a warm, welcoming and comfortable white, um, that I didn't want to leave. It was very peaceful. It was very comforting. It was very, uh, warm and welcoming is the best way I could describe it. And I can tell you, I don't share this in great detail a lot, but, uh, it is a, it is a basis of my there's not, not the basis but it is a it is a factor in my faith and absolute knowledge that there is something beyond this life we live today because if i were living if i had the experience i had which i know i did and i had been living the way that i had been living for the you know 10 years prior with all of the deceit and all of the you know terrible actions and 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 dreadful behavior and being a liar a cheat and a thief and so on And I had that warm, wonderful, welcoming feeling. I know that God is who he says he is. I know he loves us because of who he is. And most importantly, I know there's not anything I can do to change that.
1: So a lot of people will say with those near-death experiences, your brain is tricking you and all that stuff. But people who have actually gone through it, like yourself, go, no, 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 no. That was real. I, You know, it's between me and the God of my understanding, Absolutely, that was real. Absolutely. so, So it closed in around you where did you wake up? Where were you when you woke up?
0: Well, I was in the same position I was, uh, laying there, but it was as though I fell off a 10 story building. It was almost like my spirit re-entered my body and it was painful. Um, it literally, it was like a, like a, like a, like, a, like, a, like, a, like a, just like a clap. And I came out of that white and opened my eyes and it was, you know, I was physically back in reality, if you will. Um, any
1: idea how long you were out?
0: I don't have any idea. I don't have any idea, you know, um, it was long enough to, to feel what I felt and experience what I experienced and know without a shadow of a doubt that, uh, there is something beyond this life we live. And because of my own personal experience, there is nothing anybody could convince me, state to me, define to me, try to, uh, uh, analyze to scientific. Doesn't matter. I know because of my own personal experience, um, And that didn't bring me to God, per se. Because when I came out of my psychosis, I ended up in the hospital and went through that all of that. But when I was new, I still questioned the existence of God. Not that there wasn't a life after this. But what is this God and how do I relate to it? Because I had a lot of vestiges from my Catholic upbringing that I didn't like. I had some, you know, some ill will towards uh, religion, right? Because I didn't understand how to have a relationship with God and my experience and difficulty with, you know, my upbringing, because I'm not against religion by any stretch, but I don't, you know, I don't speak to that in the confines of Alcoholics Anonymous because it's not our place, But what I can tell you is my upbringing in the church taught me a lot about God. What was lacking and what I've learned through the men and women of Alcoholics Anonymous is how to have a relationship Mm -hmm. with God. And that's the key thing for me. And I think that's what's so important is I didn't know how to have a relationship when I got here. So it created doubts.
1: All right, Doug. So here is the challenge. We we are coming to the end of our time together. Yet, you haven't even gotten into the program about that, <laughs> which is which is a good thing. I love it because that means you're articulate, you have details, uh, you 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 know about this. And so, here's what I'm going to ask you to do, if you're okay with it. Sure, uh, I'm going to go ahead and close this out with page 164 of the Big Book. Okay, and then we will schedule some other time with you. And we will pick it up. I guess right when you're after your brother's, uh, sure, your your brother's house experience. Yeah, and we can talk about your your afterlife, if you will. Absolutely. Uh, Okay. Absolutely. This has been great. All right. So, page one sixty four of the big book says: abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to Him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us, like me and Mr. Doug, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Mr. Doug, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. I look forward to the next time we do
1: this. That sounds good. Thank you, Doug M. As you can tell, we ran out of time, uh, and there is much more to Doug's saga, and you will want to tune in next week for part two of Doug M. So if you are not part of the Super Secret Facebook group and you would like to be, send me your email associated with your facebook account and we will get you promptly added and or invited to the super secret facebook group and if you enjoyed doug's episode or any of the other episodes well let me put it this way we don't want you sharing gossip out there and we certainly don't want you sharing your std but we do want you sharing (laughs) doug's episode or any of the other episodes that meant something to you. It may be just what a friend or a family member needed today. Oh, I guess I didn't have to say that. But you know what? It's kind of got a ring to it. I I may stick with that as a little tagline. Anyway, on to a little (laughs) listener feedback. Jennifer writes in and Jennifer says, Hi, John. I will be sober for six years on the 28th of this month. Congratulations, Miss Jennifer. She says, I have worked the steps and presently sponsor. Ladies, in my new life, my previous life was very reckless and destructive. I made choices that I am not proud of, which consisted of abortions. When I did my fourth step, I included the abortions on my list, but my sponsor and I really didn't address it. Throughout my six years, these choices have haunted me with regret and shame. I thought I turned it over to God, but I really think I just swept it under the rug. After hearing Jenny L's episode, sharing her journey with the shame of her abortion, I am choosing to do another fourth step, especially on the shame of my past life and abortions. And just so you know, she is referencing... Uh, I believe it's episode 100, in fact, and that's Jenny L. It's called Just Say Yes. Jennifer goes on to write, she says, this time I'll be more thorough by writing letters to the children I chose not to have as an amends. I know this will be painful, But the best part about this is I have sponsored ladies with similar experiences, and I did not know how to help until now. Thank you for your service and your guest, Jennifer. Well, Jennifer, God bless you. Thank you for being vulnerable. Uh, Keep me posted. Um, I really would like to know how that amends process goes for you. Thank you very much. Damon writes in, from the United Kingdom, he says, evening, mate. I don't know if that's the exact accent he had on it when he wrote it, but that's the the accent I'm putting on An Now, evening, mate. He says, so good to finally see your handsome face last night. Well, thank you, Mr. Damon. Handsome face last night and to talk to you properly in my dodgy London accent. So what Damon's talking about here is he came to our Sober Speak Live event with Mr. David G. And we were all on a Zoom meeting and we got to see each other and chat and he says mate it was a beautiful event seeing you and Shannon and Brenda J and David G wow in all capital letters it was so exciting I felt like I was at a celebrity show <laughs> seeing all of the people I had imagined in real life David G he touched my heart again 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 Hearing his amends with his dad, I felt that it was a special moment. My apologies for my absence at the end. We are seeing some pretty horrible coastal storms here in the United Kingdom lately, and our internet connection suffers greatly, especially at 2.30 a.m. He was up at 2.30 a.m. watching this. Thank you so much, Damon. Um, I was so gutted. I couldn't rejoin. I think they had to cut me out. But hey, that's life on life's terms, brother. God was telling me to get my head down and my, eyes closed. (laughs) That's great. Can't wait to hear the Sober Speak live when it comes out as a podcast. Uh, and then he said, I did a little podcast interview for a USA thing a few weeks ago, and I thought you may get the chance to listen to it. It's on Spotify, uh, Spotify. And uh, as ever, take what you want and leave the rest at the curb. Much love and sobriety, brother Damon. And by the way, Damon, I did listen to that. And if anybody else is uh, interested in listening to that, it is on the B the Shark Recovery podcast podcast and it's called interviewed interview with alcoholic dad 4 and alcoholic dad 4 is all together and that is Mr. Damon's um uh what do you call it twitter handle so uh, anyway thanks for writing in Damon and uh, I did enjoy your interview Angela writes in And Angela says, hi, John, I found your podcast, and I can't believe what a blessing it has been for me. I heard about it through an episode of The Recovery Show with Spencer T. Yes, I am familiar that me and Spencer T. have been together on his show before. Uh, And she says, the the recent Bill C. Live episodes were just so enlightening. My husband is an alcoholic, and I am a recovering Al-Anon. We are currently separated as I've realized that I have been monitoring him to death and I have been slowly dying of untreated al He is now at a long-term rehab, rehab facility working on himself by the grace of God, and I am focusing on my own recovery and caring for our daughter with the help of Al-Anon and outside help. My sponsors suggested I go to open AA meetings so I can see what the nature of the disease is like for our alcoholic loved one. And my therapist said it would show me what recovery looks looks like for alcoholics who are truly working in the program. Your show has definitely been a blessing, exclamation point. I hope you can add me to your super secret Facebook group. Here's my email as I continue my journey to recovery many thanks for all you do angela well and as you know miss angela we got you on in that super secret facebook group and i'm so glad that you're in there sounds like you're making all the right moves god bless you brenda writes in from down under crikey well she didn't say that i put that in there and she says hi john i couldn't find the email for bill to get his daily uh, uh, email updates. So I wondered if Jay has con uh, contact details as I'd love to hear more about his spiritual work. Uh, my email is such and such. Thanks for all you do, Brenda. Uh, and I got them in contact. In fact, I think I'm reading the email before I sent them some information out. We'll see if it comes up here later, but I know I got them in contact and, uh, I'm glad you wrote in Brenda from Australia. Kristen P. writes in. She says, Hi, John. Thank you for adding me to the Super Secret Facebook group. I found Sober Speak just searching through Stitcher. I actually walked into my first AA meeting in October of 2018. But I wasn't ready for it. I thought I had a problem I could fix with a little help. I didn't understand humility. I didn't understand ego, ego, and I didn't even understand sobriety. I wanted to quit drinking, but there was no way I was going to give up weed. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) I've talked to a lot of people that have that uh, marijuana maintenance program. I completely understand. She says, I spent a year... In that AA room, going through the motions, never able to truly get sober. My husband's in the military, so after a year, we moved to Maryland where I tried AA again. But I was a sneaky little thing and would sneak a pack of cigarettes. My family hates that. Or even a drink on the way home. Yikes. Yikes. So shortly after I started AA here in Maryland, I quit altogether. I didn't need it, and I didn't want another sponsor. I know you'll be shocked to learn, but I continued to drink. And on March 5th of this year, I drank enough that my husband and children saw right through me. On March 6th, I was given an ultimatum, divorce or rehab. After four years of abusive drinking, I didn't blame my husband, but that doesn't mean I wasn't angry. I reluctantly chose rehab. My husband and I have been married almost 18 years and have four beautiful children. I did not want a divorce, although apparently drinking myself stupid was okay. (laughs) Then, while researching rehab centers, the world shut down. I know this pandemic has been awful for some, but for me, it was an answer to my prayers. My home AA group in Kansas went on Zoom and held two meetings every day. It was so good to see my AA family again, and through the desperation of almost losing my family and the life we'd built, I went to every single Zoom meeting they had. I did more the 90 and 90 to kick off my sobriety. But most importantly, I began to really learn what humility was, what ego was, what true sobriety was. I quit drinking, I quit smoking cigarettes, and I quit smoking pot all on the same day. But all three, legal or not, led me to continue my sneaky behavior and I was done with it. I had to start choosing my family and myself over substances, but I'm thick-headed and apparently a slow learner. I couldn't wrap my head around the first three steps. I wasn't raised religious, and although I understood logically that finding a new higher power was essential, I couldn't find it in my heart. So, When I went to find more perspectives, hear more stories, hear more experiences, I found your podcast. It was in one of those podcasts that I heard the first three steps stumbled on as, I can't, he can, I think I'll let him. And something in me started shifting. Those words, I can't, were so simple something about them was so empowering, which was so counterintuitive. But I can't, I really, really can't. A sick mind can't heal a sick mind. Your podcast really pushed me forward past that first step. I celebrated my 40th birthday on June 3rd, and I celebrated 90 days sobriety on June 6th. I celebrated true sobriety. It's like it says in the story of the third AA member at the back of the book, I came to AA to get sober and I found God. I have a long way to go, but I'm loving the journey. I was listening to your podcast again today to help me understand step four. It truly is a meeting between meetings Thank you for all you're doing. These podcasts are so well done, so inspirational. I feel better than I ever have in my life, and I mean it. And when I say it was one of your podcasts that helped me start moving forward, Thank you for letting me join your, pod, your Facebook group. I look forward to continual spirit, spiritual progress and getting to learn from the experiences, strength and hope of the community you have built. Eternally grateful, Kristen P. God, you guys are so good to me. You give me meaning. You give me purpose. You give me life. And um, I, I'm so thankful that you allow me to be a small part of your journey. I really am. I really, truly mean it. You're in my prayers. You're in my thoughts. And we together can do this one day at a time. Rebecca writes in from New Zealand. She's a she's a Kiwi. And she says, uh, Kia Ora John, while New Zealand life Just got back to normal, whatever that is, uh, and I'm starting to. uh, uh, And and I'm just starting to listen to JS, which is our episode right before this. Whilst whilst W H L W H I L S T W H I L S T. I love that word. Whilst uh, whilst waiting for my daughter's sport to finish, but am waiting for the rest of the world to recover from COVID-19. I'll post a meme in the super secret Facebook group that reflects what I'm thinking. And I saw that. It was very funny, Rebecca. She says, I'm grateful for your podcast. It is a great meetings between meetings. Kakite ano. Uh, I think it's kakite ano, Uh, kakite, or kakite ano, no, kakite ano. (laughs) I'm so sorry, Uh, Rebecca. Uh, Anyway, Caroline writes in from down under. Uh, Another, this is like an Australian uh, invasion, Uh, like a uh, crankies. I don't know what to do. Caroline writes in uh, from down under, and she says, hi. Uh, and by the way, the uh, the uh, subject line says J S. She says, uh, and which is our previous episode. Uh, she says, "Hi, uh, this episode was beyond fascinating. Where can I find more access about J? So I can find more on this topic. This is my first episode of Sober Speak, and I will definitely be listening to more. I am eight years sober." And I have a new American sponsor taking me through the big book in the old school way. And I'm really having a very new, deep experience. I am also a student of Western mystics. And in parentheses here, hermetic kabbalah i hope i'm pronouncing that right which very much complements the steps these teachings have also taught me taught me about aligning my will with that of god i have been attempting to find out more about the oxford group and the first century christianity as well well miss caroline it sounds like you are on a spiritual journey there ma'am and then she says uh i had a also heard about Bill and his spirit guide Saint Boniface Boniface, uh, which Jay mentioned, and wanted to read more about the writing of the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous. Man, this is great! I will definitely listen to this episode again, but would love some more direction and more material. Cheers from Australia, Caroline. Will he, Miss Caroline? have a veggie my sandwich and think about me that was absolutely fantastic as you know i got you in touch with mr js and i will get out of the middle and let you all communicate i'm so glad that uh, you were able to write in joe writes joe writes in guess what from melbourne australia you have got to be kidding me you it is an australian invasion and i'm loving it Anyway, he says, hi, John. And by the way, New Zealand's like really close to uh, Australia. So it's kind of like the whole area is, is coming at us. This is, this is the majority of listener feedback from right down there in that one little part of the universe. Anyway, Joe says, hi, John. I discovered SoberSpeak earlier this year, and I made a concerted effort to get sober after more than a decade of heavy drinking. After a couple of false starts, I am now 40 days sober and going from strength. To strength, sober speak has become a nightly routine for me, and I have caught up with most of the episodes. David G is an absolute favorite, and I must say, your wonderful sense of humor—well, <laughs> I, I think that's uh, up for debate. But thank you. An easygoing nature as host is a sort of great comfort each evening. Oh, like I said, oh, thank you so much, guys. Oh, I don't know what to say. Anyway. Uh, face-to-face meetings are slowly reopening here and I look forward to finding a sponsor and work the steps while I continue to enjoy my quote meeting between meetings unquote thanks for your service yours in sobriety Joe L from Australia all right that ladies and gentlemen concludes Uno Mas week of the Sober Speak podcast. I wonder what Sober Speak in Espanol is. I'll have to go look that up. Uh, El Sober, uh, El Speaky uh, podcasty. I'm sorry, you have to put up with it. If you made it through to the end, Thank you very much. And now you get to stop listening to this and could go on to some other really good podcaster. Anyway, God bless you. Love you all. Keep coming back. It definitely works if you work it. Adios.